Welcome to AACS Today, the official podcast of the American Association of Christian Schools. Thank you for joining us on this episode of AACS Today. I know it has been a little while since we have brought you a podcast episode, uh, but I am grateful for the opportunity to do that today, and I think we've got some pressing issues to discuss with you. Again, my name is Matt Tiscus. I'm a regional director for the Mid-South region of the AACS, and I'm joined by our legislative director, Jameson Coppola, who is coming to us from Washington, D.C. Before Jameson shares uh, with us, let me give you just a little heads up on where our podcast is headed uh, today. So we've got three things that we want to discuss with you on today's podcast. We want to talk to you a little bit about some of the latest happenings uh, with the CARES Act and some of the equitable services funding. Uh, If you've been involved with that in your local school district, you have probably run into some issues with that. So we kind of want to give you a little recap of how we got where we're at today. So we're going to start with that. And then we want to discuss uh, some of the implications of um, the newest Supreme Court justice who has just recently uh, been sworn in as of the recording of this podcast. And then uh, the election, the presidential election, and of course, uh, election for many other offices uh, around the nation taking place in just a few days from when we're recording this podcast, just about a week away. I want you to hear from Jameson and want him to give you an update on what he's hearing in Washington, D.C. from his perspective. So let's jump in. Jameson, it's good to connect with you again on the podcast. Welcome back to AACS Today. Hey, Matt. Good to be with you. I um, I heard the introduction there. and um, Did you get a promotion? The, the last I thought, I thought you were assistant to the regional manager. Ah, right? yes, <laughs> yes. I, think, I think that is correct. <laughs> I will. Or is it assistant to the regional director? Is yeah, that yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's definitely more like it. Yeah, you know me well. Yeah, I will, uh, I will make sure I update my bio across all appropriate places uh, where it is found. Congratulations on the promotion. Yes, yes, you are. You're very welcome. Well, let's um, let's jump in, Jameson, and talk about uh, where we're at with the CARES Act Equitable Services Funding. So Congress, of course, passed the CARES Act on March 27th. Um, our um, Secretary of Education kind of came up with some regulations and guidelines related to that. Take us from that point and how we got to where we're at today. Yeah, well, it's, you know, part of the normal process uh, of passing legislation. And then when money is distributed, the departments have to write a regulation to express how, what what are the particulars? What are the specifics about how that money will be spent? Of course, it has to be in keeping with the law, the language of the law, but it usually has the expertise and interpretation of the department that is responsible for that funding. So the CARES Act was a big spending bill to try to mitigate the economic effects of the response to the COVID virus. And the portion of money that the Department of Ed got um, needed to have regulations. And so it was the secretary's determination, it was her understanding that the COVID crisis had affected all students. And so when they wrote the regulation, they wrote it so that, uh, maybe I should take a step back. Um, The the funds were distributed through an existing uh, mechanism called equitable services. And that's 
an existing understanding and legislation and from the department on how to distribute federal funds to students that meet certain criteria. A lot of times there's, um, um, it, it's, it's to help students with learning disabilities, but it's also based on uh, understandings of uh, uh, poverty, right? So th there are students that are identified as Title I students. Right. And so the, the legislature and the Department of Ed are used to doing this in just their normal course of business year to year. But in the CARES Act, it was a little nuanced because the language wasn't as clear in the CARES Act as it is in regular legislation. And DeVos, I think, was rightly concerned that states would take their distribution of this money. So the money would be distributed uh, between the 50 states for uh, response to the, the COVID crisis. But once the money was within the state, there was a concern that the public schools would use a per pupil calculation to carve out the largest portion of funds for the public schools and then just use the remainder of the funds and distribute it to Title I students at the private school. So it would be fundamentally unfair right. if states did that. And so because of that um, concern and because of the belief that, that Congress passed this law to help every school student um, deal with the effects of what COVID had meant in the education environment, the secretary required states to use one of two distribution methods. So they had to either use a per student calculation for every student, public and private, when they distributed the funds, or they had to use a Title I distribution for public and private school students. So they couldn't do one distribution sort for the public school and a different one for the private school, but they still had a choice. They, they could, in their state, say, we're going to distribute the funds on a per pupil basis, no matter if they're private or public, or we're going to distribute the funds on a Title I calculation, public and private. And then that would be fair um, by, by having states use those two categories of funds. And so that was the original reg. That was the information we sent out to AACS schools, that that was how the department was going to deal with the CARES Act funding. And by the way, some of our schools, for instance, we had a school here uh, in Texas, in my region, that was promised $100,000 under uh, those, um, under that interpretation, right? That they were going to have $100,000 to be able to put to use towards COVID-related issues in their school. But something happened. There was a lawsuit brought by some states and a particular uh, organization that felt like uh, that regulation was incorrect. So tell us what happened when, in that lawsuit. Yeah, and before we go there, to your point, I mean, that was the story we heard from a number of our schools. Yes. You know, when the, when the federal government starts distributing billions of dollars, uh, you, you know, even in D.C., that begins to be real money. And it has an impact on, yeah. you know, you know, down the, down the line. So it wasn't uncommon to hear schools were anticipating receiving uh, significant funding to help them mitigate the crisis, to go, to move to online learning. There were some schools that um, thought that each one of their students was going to be able to get a digital device to right. access online learning. So it, it was seen as a helpful thing to make this transition into online learning so that 
schools could comply with uh, the stay-at-home orders and the mitigation attempts by the states in order to prevent the spread of the virus. But as you mentioned, a couple of states did not like that interpretation. And in fact, uh, Senator Alexander, who is chairman of the, the Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee in the, in the Senate, very influential, powerful committee, didn't like the secretaries and the Department of Ed's interpretation of the law. They, they felt like they were wrong. And uh, several states sued. I think California, Michigan, Maine, New Mexico, Wisconsin. And then in D.C., uh, somehow the NAACP, I think, became the named party in the suit. But I, I, I don't know if it was on behalf of D.C. or if it was a standalone as the NAACP. Nevertheless, uh, many people sued the Department of Education and uh, said that, that her interpretation through the regulation, her interpretation of the law in the regulation was incorrect. And uh, AACS, because we care about private education and because we felt like her interpretation was the sensible, reasonable interpretation, COVID had affected every student, not just low-income students. And there was a fundamental fairness to states having to treat private school students and public school students the same uh, based on their distribution, right? They, could, they couldn't it's, it seems to be fundamentally unfair for a state to say, no, we're going to give the bulk of this money to private school, uh, public school students, and then whatever's left over, we'll, we'll distribute it to private school students. And so we joined an amicus brief in favor of the secretary and in favor of the existing regulation. But uh, as those cases worked through the courts, it became clear that, that no, uh, no court uh, saw it the same way. And so ultimately, the courts decided that the regulation was not lawful. There was about three court cases, I believe, too, wasn't there? Yeah, they, I think they were in uh, the districts. And so I think, I, uh, I think potentially the seventh district, the DC circuit was one of them. And uh, I think the ninth, if I recall, right, but don't quote so, me on that specifically. So as we're thinking about AACS's involvement, and we and we we want to remind, continue to remind our schools the level of involvement and connection that we have uh, in Washington, the level of representation that we have for our schools, because these conversations that are taking place are very important, and sometimes we don't get to, you know, sometimes you don't get to talk about them. Um, but um, this led to some conversations that you had with with some folks in the the uh, education department. So talk, talk to us a little more about that, about how things have, have gone since uh, the rulings have come down. Well, obviously, while the, the courts were <clears throat> hearing the cases, we were being supportive. There's not much you can do at that point. You have, you have to let it play out, but we were keeping updated on it. When the final ruling was released, we were, we were then uh, primarily concerned with, okay, what will the department do now? Will they try to appeal this to higher courts? They've lost in all three of the districts. So will there be an, a, an appeal process? Will they rewrite the reg? Uh, is there something that could be learned from the decisions of the court that could help them to tweak the existing reg? Um, so those are all questions that we begin to have. Is there, you know, for the states that have already operated under the old reg, right. and like you said, 
have told schools this is what your distribution is going to be. Is there going to be any attempt by states to try to claw that money back? Right. Uh, so there were a lot of unanswered questions. There was ambiguity. And so uh, we were part of um, a private school uh, coalition uh, that works together on these issues. Um, we were, AACS was able to address this with a deputy secretary of education for legislation. And um, we're able to say uh, on behalf of our private schools, what we need most now is clarity. Yeah. You know, the LEAs have to know what the department's going to do because we're kind of in limbo here now. And that has a real impact. This was right about the beginning of September. So here's our schools are gearing back up. (laughs) They've been told that you're going to have these digital devices. This is going to be your share of the COVID relief funds for education. Put the brakes on. Exactly. And so there was a lot of ambiguity. And so we, we effectively lobbied for uh, some statement from the Department of Ed. And it wasn't too long after that, that the secretary released, I think it was September 25th, the secretary released a notice uh, to the school community, specifically to the state and local education authorities. And when we say LEA, that's what we mean, a local education authority. Uh, They work uh, under the auspices of the state uh, education department um, but they're usually the people that our schools have their primary contact with. And so uh, the secretary finally sent notice so that LEAs then were able to make some decisions and to communicate with the schools that had been impact. And unfortunately, their decision was to repeal the, the regulation, not try to amend it or to continue to uh, fight uh, for an appeal uh, to the courts. And uh, so you know, that was disappointing. But one of the highlights or one of the upsides to that is she did announce that the, sorry, the Department of Ed wouldn't seek any um, adverse action against states that still use the per pupil funding formula that had existed under the original mm-hmm. reg. And that was one of our primary concerns, that there would be money that had already been or, 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 or um, supplies, cleaning supplies, digital devices, that had already been distributed to private schools that then would be clawed back and, uh, and questions about, well, what if those things like, you know, disposable cleaning supplies, what if they've already been used? Will the school then owe their local education authority for those uh, supplies? Uh, can I have and, that uh, half bottle of Clorox back, please? Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes when you deal with uh, bureaucrats, you're, you you do get some crazy uh, interpretations or rulings of what they wish you to do with uh, the information that they have. So a school leader who, uh, at this point, if they haven't made a connection to their LEA, of course, we'd encourage them to <laughs> encourage them to at least do that and, and maintain uh, that relationship because um, if that school is in- interested in pursuing uh, these funds, uh, there may be opportunities. Uh, to participate uh, at some level. And so we encourage you to reach out to your LEA if that's something that you're interested in at your ministry, correct? Yeah, we always encourage that. I think it's important to develop those relationships for times like this. We have now uh, several stories where the local education authority has said to our schools, listen, we're we're not going to take back any of... um, 
the, the funding or the supplies that have been supplied to you, even though they were given under the old understanding of the right. regs. And it's it, what's so funny to me, Matt, is that it happens in places and in states you sometimes wouldn't expect. Correct. You know, like Maryland, like you would think Maryland of all places, the LEA would be trying to pull back every dollar they could. But we've got several of our Maryland schools that said, no, our LEA said that that decision was made before I think September 8th was right in the beginning of September was when right. the final uh, case was handed down, decision was handed down. And uh, many of the LEA said, no, we're, we're going to stand by what we told you back in uh, June or July or August, and uh, we're not going to uh, change our, our funding formula. Uh, yeah. Now, that's not true everywhere. Uh, we've heard cases where the distribution would be fifty or $60,000, and it would, it would drop down to three or $4,000 based on the new calculation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not... It really is not even just a state by state decision. It's going to be a local education authority by local education authority decision, an LEA by LEA. So that's why we say, you know, it pays, it'll be good for you to have that connection to that person in your community because they are involved in education and your students are being educated in that uh, person's area. And so it, it, won't hurt for you to have a good working relationship with those uh, people in your local education authority. Yeah. And as always, our legislative office stands ready uh, to serve our schools. So if, if our team can be of assistance to you, uh, please don't hesitate to to reach out, send Jameson uh, an email or phone call, send Hannah an email or phone call and Maureen and uh, our team uh, can certainly offer assistance to you and some guidance uh, along these areas. Uh, I think that's that's kind of a good discussion on that. Let's move to issue number two that we wanted to, to discuss, which is there is now officially a new Supreme Court Justice, Amy Coney Barrett, which Jameson, Indeed. Uh, that's, that's a huge deal with some uncertainty facing us with the election around the corner. We're going to talk about that here in just a second. Uh, President Trump has had an opportunity now to nominate and place on the court three Supreme Court justices. This is a, this is a big win for people mm-hmm. who appreciate an originalist approach to the constitution is it not it it is and stunning kind of developments um i i uh there's so many kind of intricacies to this i i kind of don't know where to start but let me let me start here um i saw a statement from mitch mcconnell today um and this is funny Uh, senator mcconnell came into a meeting after gorsuch was confirmed and he came into one of my more conservative coalition meetings. And he looked at the crowd of, I don't know, uh, 25, 30 of us sitting there representing, all representing very socially conservative organizations. And he said, I know you guys don't always like me. He said, but if for no other reason than I held uh, President Obama's uh, nomination, Supreme Court nomination, and I have now got you. Gorsuch, you should be grateful to me. And, and it, you know, it evoked some applause, uh, <laughs> certainly a lot of smiles because uh, he's right about that. We, we sometimes think, wish that he would fight harder for socially conservative understandings and legislation, but it was a huge deal that 
um, he held on that because the political pressure was very, very intense mm. for him to put that um, justice on the court. Now, fast forward through the Kavanaugh hearing, which was an intense, maybe mm. the most contentious hearing, and the play up to ACB, which I just found out today the left says that is so disrespectful to the notorious RGB <laughs> to, to, to ruin her legacy by saying ACB. They're accusing us, I guess, of, oh, I don't know, plagiarism. That, that's been in the, <laughs> the election news lately. Uh, whatever their concern is, they don't like us calling her ACB. But I think it's fitting. I like it. But fast forward to now through three, as you mentioned, three Supreme Court nominations. It's historic. I mean, uh, not just because of the potential quality of these three individuals, their originalist understanding. Now, you know, we have to caveat that with the incredibly disappointing decision by Gorsuch. Um, but we, we are hopeful that um, Barrett will be an originalist jurist, that she... Uh, will judge words accurately, language accurately, yeah. legislative legislative understandings at the time these things were passed, um, that her logic will be solid, and that she will be lawful, that she won't create law, that she will see that the law is faithfully um, understood and executed. We, we had a, kind of a, a big case this summer that came to the court that, that worked in our favor. Um, are there any... Are there any cases kind of floating out there that you're aware of at this moment uh, that might be might be coming be coming on our radar here that um, Justice Barrett may be looking at in the near future that you're aware of at this point? Well, the election is biggest, right? So uh, right now the play is because you know no battles. There, there's no permanent victories and there's no permanent defeats in politics, right? Um, I think that's even true in the most authoritarian countries that there is still some work and some politicking to be done in order to gain um, uh, your your uh, perspective or your um, worldview um, being entered into the political discourse and decision making. And so, right now, the the election is the biggest, and the and the left's push right now is for Amy Coney Barrett to recuse herself and they've got a kind of a convoluted reasoning to it, but it has to do with the fact that they still think that her nomination was unjust. They, they look at back at Mitch McConnell holding up um, his name, just Merrick Garland. Garland. Thank you. Merrick Garland. They look at that and they say he's hypocritical. He did right. with Amy Coney Barrett, what he wouldn't do with Merrick Garland. And the difference is that that was a term limited president. President Correct. Obama could not be reelected. Right. So he nominated this person in the last year of his incumbency. Um, there was divided government. The, the Senate was controlled by Republicans. The um, executive was controlled by the Democrats, uh, Obama. Biden, Senator Biden had made this kind of, it's called the Biden rule that you, you, a president doesn't just get to nominate a person in the last year of office and then expect that the Senate, if it's held by the opposing party, will automatically confirm it. They have the choice to do the job 
of confirmation the way that they think is right. Okay. So fast forward to now, it's a different set of circumstances, although on the surface, it looks similar because you don't have a term limited president, right? Uh, president Trump has, a, a, a good chance of being reelected. Um, you don't have divided government. The Senate is controlled by Republicans. The president is the Republican. So the factual circumstances are different between the two, even though you can make a characterization or a surface level argument that they were the same. And so that leads us to the argument that says, well, because of, of the situation that she was nominated in, she should do the honorable thing and recuse herself. And uh, so the pushback, by the way, is Elena Kagan, uh, when she was nominated, um, had been intimately involved in the as legal counsel. She was in government. Right. And I, I, she might have been solicitor general. I, I forget what her uh, position was in uh, President Obama's uh, government. But she did not recuse herself from uh, the healthcare cases. So here she was intimately involved right. with crafting policy that then as a Supreme Court justice, she ruled on. And she made an argument that she um, did not need to recruit, recuse herself. Right. And so that's what conservatives right now are beginning to talk about to make sure that we shore up um, the, the conservative block of the Supreme Court to make sure Sen uh, uh, Senator, <laughs> oh God forbid, um, Chief Justice Roberts right. doesn't put pressure on Amy Coney Barrett to recuse herself uh, from some sense of honor because the 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 legality. I guess it's not really a legality, but the 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 precedent and um, the patterns in the past give no solid reason why Amy Coney Barrett should recuse herself from any election case. Yeah. And, and the accusation that the rules have been broken or the rules have been changed. I mean, it just, it just doesn't hold water. Let, let us not forget. And Jameson, correct me if I'm wrong, but there used to be a requirement for a 60 vote majority in the Senate on, on things like this. And correct me if I'm wrong, but the person that actually, changed that rule or or the the senate that did that was was under democratic leadership when it came to the affordable care act correct yes the you know the senate has always supposed to have been the more deliberative body um you know back before what was it the 17th amendment they were um they came out of state government they were appointed right by the people that were elected within the state to run the state they had a process whereby they sent the senators to the senate we changed that with the 17th Amendment, thinking more direct democracy would be better. Um, but it changed the fundamental character of the Senate. Well, the Senate has, has had its own internal rules, precedent, procedures, sure. traditions, and the filibuster is one of those, right? So it used to take 60 votes in order to move toward a vote on um, presidential appointees. Right. Uh, Judges, uh, which would include Supreme Court judges, and then um, legislation. Well, Harry Reid, you know, the, the, the shorthand way of saying what he did was he broke the rules of the Senate in order to change the rules of the Senate. And through some 
parliamentary and procedural malfeasance. Anybody that thinks that the process matters as much as the, um, the outcome would say what Harry Reid did was disrespectful to the processes of the Senate that helped keep it more deliberative, less uh, reactionary. Um, the House is supposed to be reactionary. It's supposed to be right. the, the boiling teacup. Right. And the Senate is supposed to be the saucer underneath where the passions of the people settle and cool so that better decisions can be made. So Harry Reid decided that he would break the rules to change the rules on presidential appointees and judicial nominations except Supreme Court nominees. Well, when the Republicans got into power, they said, well, if that's now the tradition in the Senate based on Harry Reid breaking the rules to change the rules, he's created a new tradition. We're going to use that tradition to undo the 60-vote threshold, the filibuster threshold for Supreme Court nominees. And that's why you've seen historically low votes for President Trump's three uh, Supreme Court nominees because they don't need that filibuster-proof majority anymore. Well, Justice Barrett is definitely a win for people who appreciate, again, an originalist interpretation of the Constitution and so I think that that is uh, something we can celebrate. But let's turn our conversation uh, toward now the upcoming election. So, again, just uh, six or so days away from when we're recording this podcast. Jameson, what are you hearing in Washington, D.C. about the election? Do you have a, an eight ball? Do you have something you can help us with to shake it up and give us some insight? Don't we wish. Hey, before we go there, can I say one more thing about just the dynamics on the Supreme Court? Yes. So, uh, of course, um, Justice Thomas uh, swore in Amy Coney Barrett, which I thought was a a special thing. Uh, This is, you you know, okay, so (laughs) I don't think this is a surprise to most of our folks that are listening, but we've been disappointed with some of the decisions that Chief Justice Roberts has made. Yes. And he is trending towards more liberal interpretations of the Constitution. You know, as we look at the circumstances here, a lot of people say he's trying to prevent the court from looking political. Right. But he's being political in order to avoid Mm -hmm. the court looking political. So (laughs) if it's sincerely intended, it's not working out. If it's not sincerely intended, it causes grave concern about what the court may look like. Well, the silver lining to this is now this. As Supreme Court, um, as I'm sorry, as um, Chief Justice, if he's in the majority uh, of the voting on any particular case, as chief justice, he would assign the writing of the majority opinion. If he sides with the liberal block, um, he loses the ability to assign the opinion. And do you know who was the most senior justice now that will assign opinion writing? No. Justice Clarence Thomas. Uh huh. <laughs> so if you read, if you read Justice Thomas's opinion, Opinions, they are always solidly originalist. Yes. Uh, solidly, he has such a solid grasp of the rule of law. He has a solid grasp of the constitutional order, the intent of the Constitution, the purpose of these things. And so, the, the, if, if Justice Roberts wants to be able to limit the scope of majority decisions, he'll have to vote with the conservatives. Yeah. Yeah. 
if he really has a strong opinion about it and he joins the liberals, uh, we may get some actually much better decision writing because Justice Thomas will be the one assigning the uh, writing of the majority opinion. So I, I, I find uh, some satisfaction <laughs> in yeah. that observation. And it's just wild that President Trump has had the opportunity to nominate three and, and gotten three justices to the bench in just one four-year term. That is just un, yeah. really yeah. unbelievable. And, you know, should he win re-election, which is our next topic, you know, the, the definite possibility exists for at least one more and potentially three more, depending on if some of the, the Republican-appointed justices decide to step down during uh, an elected Republican president's term. Yeah, unbelievable. Well, let's go. Let's go the yeah. election then. Let's talk about it. What are you hearing? Uh, what are you yeah. seeing? Uh, help help our people think through this. Yeah. So this is the advice I give. So you can't look at the national polls. Um, we, we don't have a popular vote for president, and a lot of the polls that you're seeing there will only record or only report national polling. Um, I, I can't remember, but rough numbers. There are enough citizens in New York and. California by population to elect a president, mm -hmm. um, it, it, you know, based on the number of citizens that vote, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so our country's never looked at the popular vote as uh, the thing that determines the legitimacy of a president. Now, lately, the left has been trying to say that. Uh, there, In times past, the popular vote uh, might be looked at as something that provides a mandate. Right. The presidents will talk about, listen, so many people voted for me that they I know what they want me to do. And this is what I'm going to do. But it was never looked at as something that determined the legitimacy or illegitimacy of the president. Um, and so you can't look at the national polls. You have to look at primarily the swing states. And and how do you do that? So you, you look at the polling within the state. But you have to understand something about the polling within the states that it's still notoriously um, unscientific <laughs> the way they determine. You think uh, they have this figured out by now, right? I mean, come on. Yeah, it's difficult because, you know, people change their ideas. People don't tell pollsters what they're really thinking. Um, pollsters have to try to figure out who they think will turn out more voters, right? Who has registered more voters. Uh, they have to do a lot of calculations. And then if they have an agenda themselves as a poller, uh, a pollster, they will then create sometimes what's called a push poll, right? So they, if they want you to think that um, you'd be this crazy person to vote for the person they want to lose, then the numbers can be inflated. Right. Um, so each one of the campaigns does internal polling, right? And they don't release that. Occasionally you'll hear a campaign spokesman say, well, our internal polling indicates um, something like that. So what you do is you look at where the candidates are campaigning. And uh, just a couple of fat, you know, a couple of things about that. Um, President Biden has spent most of his money on uh, media, uh, campaigning. Mm -hmm. They've not had a ground game. The Republicans right. have been hammering a ground game. Right. Um, you, you have seen the candidates in Michigan lately. Michigan's a swing state. You've right. seen them in North Carolina, a swing state. You see them in Florida because Florida's huge. Um, 
So follow where the candidates are going and look at the polling. If, if for instance, if Biden were up by, I, I think I saw a poll where Biden was up by 16 points in Michigan. If that were true, Biden wouldn't be going to Michigan. Right. And neither would Trump, by the way, because they would they would spend their money and their time campaigning in a different state if it was unwinnable or right. if it was going to be a landslide. So that's that's one one tip for anybody that's watching, you know, the election. And then there's other numbers. So uh, I think Pennsylvania registered 200,000 more voters that were identified as Republican in the last uh, four years than Democrats. And Trump won Pennsylvania, I think, if I remember right, by 40,000 votes. Correct. So that would mean in Pennsylvania for him to lose it, which I'm not saying this isn't possible. I'm just saying for him to lose it, he would have to lose any of the new voters, which usually vote in high numbers, uh, any of the new voters that they registered, 200,000, and the 40,000 that he had before. So that means nobody that voted for Hillary will have changed their minds to vote for right. Trump. And all of the people that registered as Republicans will go over to Biden, and all the people that voted for Trump last time would go over to Biden. So there's there's some encouraging numbers in some of the swing states. Florida, huge numbers of Republican registered voters. So you look at those types of things. Um, one of the hidden numbers I've heard recently is the single biggest indicator. If you just looked at one indicator of whether or not a household voted for Trump um, in the last election, it would be a firearms ownership. Mm-hmm. And, you know, since January of this year, by the way, because of some of the social unrest and, and the um, rioting uh, and uh, uh, civil disorder that's been happening, um, gun sales have been off the charts. It's potential that um, there have been a lot of uh, Trump supporters indicate that now they may not tell a pollster, yeah, I'm going to vote for Trump. They're calling it now the sh- the shy Trump voter. Right, right. <laughs> You know, sometimes we used to call it the uh, the silent majority or, um, you know, p- people that wouldn't tell a pollster just because of not wanting the pollster to think poorly of them or misunderstand them. They kind of sense the social pressure to not uh, vote for Trump. So they may not tell him their true intentions or her. Um, but, you know, some of the hidden reliable indicators are whether or not there's a firearm owned by the the household. So, you know, people make their money prognosticating. I don't, so my opinion doesn't matter, but I I think there's, (laughs) there are signs. Well, you know, it's just, politics is a tough game, Matt. So I'm glad I don't have to make my money consulting or trying to. So no, so so even no prediction for our listeners here on where you think it's going to work. Well, no, I, I think that, um, No matter what the polls say, Trump is definitely in the game. This is not, um, this is not something that should dispirit you. It should encourage you to do your civic responsibility. Everyone should vote. It's, it's the least you can do in a representative democracy to, to bear your civic responsibilities is to go out and vote. Um, and, and I think, you know, everything said and done, this isn't, the type of election that the Democrats seem to think it is. 
Um, the, the, I'll give you this. The best information I have. So there's a group. I think it's the Trafalgar group. Mm. And they have predicted the correct outcome in presidential elections since 2006. And they predicted Trump would win last election. So, which near, I don't know, they may have been the only polling company that predicted this. Um, they say that Trump will actually uh, advance his electoral college numbers. Mm. Um, they're predicting at least uh, 330 electoral college votes, if I remember right, in their research. Um, the lowest number I've heard from kind of the inside baseball crowd of pollsters is that Trump wins with a minimum of 278 electoral college votes. I think 270 are needed to win. And so, you know, I get, again, it's not over till it's over. Um, but I think President Trump has a good chance to win the election if Republicans get out and vote. Yeah. Well, th this has been interesting discussion. I've enjoyed uh, bouncing some of these things off of you and just getting your feedback. You are on the ground in D.C. You're in the meetings, and this has been helpful information. Just to kind of quick recap for you, we, we talked about uh, where we're at now with the CARES Act equitable services funding and some of the mess that's come out uh, because of three court cases uh, that went against the uh, original regulation uh, from the Department of Ed. And we talked a little bit about new Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett and some of the implications of her um, nomination and her confirmation. And then uh, we got some of, some of Jameson's tea leaf reading there, which, of course, we don't believe in that. But just a little bit of inside baseball, I think, as yeah, Jameson yeah. said. So, Jameson, thanks for sharing some yeah. insight and your wisdom and for joining us. And we hope this podcast was helpful uh, yep. to you, our listener. Thanks so much for listening. Jameson, any last words for our listeners? Yeah, just something you said earlier about contacting us. If we can be a help to you, please don't hesitate. It's it's a joy for us to have contact with the schools that we represent. It's it never is it, it's never a it is never a burden for us to hear from you. Um, it's one of our privileges to serve you, and it's always nice to make connections and uh, do what we can to help you with questions and concerns that you have. Well, there you go. You heard it directly from the legislative director. Reach out to our office if they can be of service to you. Don't forget, if you haven't been out to vote yet, be sure you get out and vote. And thanks for listening. Have a great day and God bless.